always enjoy coming into Men's Bible Study and spending some time with you. So thanks, Pastor PJ, for the invite. Um, I did say thank you and yes before I looked at the passage. And I, I, I didn't know off the top of my head what exactly what happened in chapter 14. And I went and I looked. And, and so I, I found a particularly thorny and challenging passage. But the more I've studied it and spent time in it the last week or so, I've uh, really grown to appreciate it. And so I... I Look forward to our time together and your discussions. I hope they're fruitful uh, because it's a great and important text for us. So open up to chapter 14. While you're doing that, I'm going to tell you about a friend that I had in college, a great friend through my college years. Uh, we we gra- both graduated and went off our separate ways and lived uh, many hours away from each other, several hours. And we scheduled this reunion type thing, this weekend where we got some college friends together and our wives and uh, we had this glorious weekend planned out. And when I got there, to my surprise, and I think to his surprise, we pretty early in the weekend got into an argument, him and I. And it was silly. It was over. It was about some gray area issue, but we were both adamant about our position. I I took a strong stance in my position about this thing, and he took a strong stance in his. We both dug our heels in, and it created a ton of conflict between him and I, and subsequently the rest of the people on the trip. And the weekend was... um, was in many ways ruined, and and my relationship with him, there there was a wedge that had never been there before in my relationship with this guy. He was a good friend of mine. And I went home from that weekend just thinking, man, what happened to this guy? And, you know, we, we go off, we go our separate ways, we come back together, and and now this? And we lived far apart, as I mentioned, so it's not like we were intentionally avoiding contact with each other. At least I wasn't intentionally avoiding him, you know, taking a separate way and not passing him. But years went by with us not corresponding at all. And we had corresponded before, um, but this situation happened and maybe we were both waiting for the other person to reach out and to um, take action, but neither of us did for years. And one day, I was studying a passage similar to the one that we have tonight, and I was struck and I was convicted to the point that I picked up the phone and called my friend. And when I called him, and it could have just as easily been him calling me, by the grace of God, one of us had to, you know, break the silence and reach out to the other. And um, and I called him. I wasn't sure if he was going to be mad at me. If I wasn't sure, you know, just how the conversation was going to be received. But sure enough, I call him, and I just jump right into it. Hey, man, um, <laughs> a couple years ago, you know, um, I just want to apologize for being an idiot. And will you forgive me? And um, I could hardly finish before he jumped right in and said the same thing, trying to take all the blame himself. And um, we had this like moment of reconciliation. We ended up talking on the phone for an hour. And with that simple phone call and apology and um, appeal for forgiveness, there was this mutual sigh of relief and a burden that had been on my shoulders for years was now lifted, gone. And um, I think for him as well. Reconciliation is hard. 
Um, because we're, we're prideful, we're sinful, we're stubborn. But when we reach out to seek reconciliation, um, we are acting in line with, I think, what, what God calls us to do as, as followers of Christ and representatives of him here on earth. Reconciliation is right at the heart of um, God's desire for his people. And so though it's hard, um, we ought to do our best to attain it where, wherever we have strained relationships. And in 2 Samuel 14, there is a strained relationship. And at the end of it, it there appears to be reconciliation. And let's take some time to study what took place for this reconciliation to happen. So I want to identify from chapter 14, three keys to godly reconciliation. If it's important to God, it ought to be important to us, and we ought to take some time to look at this text and see how we can grow in the area of pursuing reconciliation with other people that God puts in our lives. So if you look in verse 1, you've got... Um, Absalom, who is now estranged, he's off, he's distanced himself from David, and there's this wedge in their relationship. And Joab knows that the king's heart went out to Absalom, and in verse 2, Absalom sent to Tekoa to bring from there a wise woman, and he said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments and do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who's been mourning for many days for the dead and, and go to the king and speak this to him. And Joab put the words in her mouth. And so Joab takes this initiative to try to set up a situation where David would, um, would that it would, I think, result in him being reconciled to his son because they are distanced from each other. And as we get into this first 20 verses or so, uh, we'll see that that David gets to a point where he does, in fact, show mercy. He gets to a place where, though Absalom is guilty, he extends mercy toward him. And that was the first step in our text for reconciliation. And so it's going to take me some time to, to prove this point. It's going to, you know, we got 20 verses here. Um, but put it down this way for point number one. Uh, the first key is to show mercy to the guilty. Show mercy to the guilty. This text is, it it's maybe feels and sounds similar to what Nathan does when he convinces David that he is the guilty man in his parable, except this passage isn't as neat and tidy as that one, if, if you can call that one neat and tidy. Uh, this one is just a little bit more thorny and challenging because Joab commissions this wise woman to make up a story about herself where she goes in before the, the king and, and puts on an act. She dishevels her appearance and she pretends to cry and, you know, have this distraught sort of story about her sons. One kills the other and she begs the king to show mercy to her guilty son. Except the way she tells it, it, it doesn't sound like a clear um, intentional murder. I mean, look at, look at what she says. Um, they're in the field. There was no one to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. The way she tells the story, at least the way second Samuel has it, it could have been an accident. 
It could have been intentional. We don't really know. But the Mosaic law has different instructions for an intentional murder and an unintentional murder. And so here you have this woman who's set up to play a part and act out this story. And then in the story, it's not exactly the same scenario as David and his sons. And uh, so it's just a little fishy from the start. She appeals to the fact that she's a widow and with both of her sons dead, this would leave her as a widow with no name and no support. So a little, also a little different than David's situation. All of that on top of her shame. And so David cuts to the quick. He, he feels mercy for her and, and grants pardon to this woman's hypothetical made up son. And in verse nine, this is a wise woman. She's tricky. She's shrewd. Um, so in, in verse 8, he grants the pardon. I'll give orders concerning you. So yes, pardon granted. Verse 9, the woman, she, she takes it further. She says to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. So though you're pardoning this guilty person, let me be the one who's held responsible if it comes to that. And David's like, no. No, 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 this, this pardon, it's your son is going to be guiltless and you are going to be guiltless. And if anyone has a problem, they can come and see me. And she presses. Um, so verse 10, it explains that if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. And then she wants him to invoke the Lord and bring God's pronouncement of uh, pardon into this as well. Verse 11. Please let the king invoke the Lord your God that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son be not destroyed. And he says, he gives this pronouncement, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And so with David's pronouncement of pardon still echoing in the halls of his chamber, uh, she turns it on him. And in the Nathan type uh, turn here, she says, please let your servant speak by a word to my Lord, the King. And he grants her permission. And she takes his pronouncement of pardon and says, if you're willing to do this for me, why don't you do it for your son? And David is pinned. He's cornered. He's made this pronouncement. He's invoked the Lord. And he can't get out of this situation. It's like he's compelled now to... Uh, show mercy to his guilty son, Absalom. And so that's kind of what happens there in verses 12 through 17. He finds out that Joab put this, set him up on this. David is shrewd and he understands this. Verse 20, did David put you up to this? She says, yes. Um, so you have this really tricky and interesting text where David agrees in a backdoor sort of way to forgive and pardon his guilty son, Absalom. And so if we just look at those first 20 or so verses, what does this passage teach us? Does it teach us to trick people into getting them to show us mercy? <laughs> I mean, does it, does it teach us to show mercy like David did, only if we're tricked into it? Um, what are we supposed to do with this? I think there's a, a, a sense in which this text, is, it's, it's history, and it's just saying, 
here's what happened. Some of it's ugly, but this, here's, here's the story of, of God's people. Here's the story of King David, and he, he had his ups and his downs. So there's a his, history element to it, but there's another sense when we're talking about David that we can, and, and I think should, draw some parallels to Jesus, the son of David, who's to come and establish an eternal throne. We talked about that in chapter 7, right? Jesus comes and Matthew presents him from the very start as the new and better David, the new king who comes and does all things right. So, there is a sense in which we ought to perhaps look at what David does and appreciate all the more who Jesus is and what Jesus does as the son of David, the king and judge, capital K, capital J. Every time we see David make mistakes, we ought to be all the more thankful for Jesus who comes a thousand years later. And so in our story, David pardons a guilty person. And he's kind of tricked into it. I don't really know what to think about all that. But it's more complicated than that, I think, because this is not just an interpersonal decision for David. It's not simply that someone sinned against him and David just needs to let it go. It's not a simple um, forgiveness and reconciliation. Because David is also, if, if it were that, then sure, David, forgive Forgive your son for his poor choice. Except David is also functioning as the judge in this scenario. And the law is clear. Genesis 9, 6, it says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And then again in Exodus twenty-one twelve, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. The Mosaic law was not vague about this. It was clear. There, there were instructions. And so David... Um, does not enforce that law here in this situation. He ends up showing mercy. And the more I thought about that, I, I, the more I wondered if he felt obligated to show mercy like this. Because it was not that long ago that David was shown mercy for not one, but two capital offenses that he committed, which the, the law is also explicitly clear about those things as well. David had been pardoned for his sin of adultery, and he had been pardoned for his sin of murder by extension. And both of those capital offenses were let go for him. And so now here he is as the, trying to be the just judge and rule justly in this situation. And here he's letting capital offenses go. I wonder how much he may have felt obligated to show mercy in the situation. Which makes it that much more amazing for Jesus to show up on the scene as a perfect, holy judge and to extend mercy. Jesus was in no way obligated, and it's to this day, is in no way obligated to show mercy because... You know, in the past, he had been forgiven of the similar sin. Jesus was completely faultless, had no one to blame him for anything along these lines, yet he shows mercy. 
And so if Jesus shows mercy in this sort of way, then we can take a look at this text, I think, and get back to our point number one. So I told you to take some time to prove this point, but I think we ought to also be people who show mercy to the guilty in an interpersonal sort of fashion. We ought to be quick to grant mercy and overlook offenses against us. And that can be a hard thing, can't it? We, we want to um, see people who, um, who act against us. We want to see them brought to justice. We want to maintain our image, our name, our reputation. Do you overlook the offenses of, uh, of others? Do you feel like people deserve payback when they mistreat you? And uh, do you, you try to stick it to them when you can? Or are you able to let it go? Are you able to give to someone or not give to someone that which they do deserve? And it's in your power to give. I think Christ demonstrates mercy for us in a way that we uh, ought to see and appreciate and model. And so the first key to reconciliation with people is this concept of mercy, overlooking an offense. And so when I say that, I just, I, I want to challenge you to think if there's anyone that comes to your mind when I start talking about mercy and overlooking an offense and not enacting justice when you can, is there someone that comes to your mind that you can show mercy toward? Think about that person and I want to keep drawing this out as we explore the, the next keys to reconciliation. Because just, just by showing mercy doesn't mean that you've accomplished the complete and full reconciliation that needs to happen when there's a, a wedge between two people. Um, the story goes on in chapter 14 of 2 Samuel with David showing mercy, but he doesn't fully reconcile with Absalom. Yes, he shows mercy, but no, he doesn't fully reconcile. And so point number two is to follow through to full reconciliation. Follow through to full reconciliation. And so we'll look at the next chunk of, of verses here. But as soon as I say that word follow through, and, and maybe there's other dads that, that think of this, like my son who's six right now, I'm working with him on how to hit a baseball. And I've been like saying those exact words to him. When you swing the bat, you've got to follow through with it. And, you know, we, he's sitting there and he'll hack at it or, you know, line up the wrong way. And there's just a lot of instruction required to, to go through with all the mechanics of hitting a ball. One of the keys is following all the way through with it. And I think we can, we can do this in terms of reconciliation where we can get part way and feel like, all right, I've done my part. I've done enough. I can kind of take a step back now. Our text, I think, is going to call us to not just take a couple steps toward reconciliation, but take all the steps that we can possibly take toward reconciliation and really uh, seek that full repair of the relationship to the best of our ability. Look at verse 21. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this, go, bring the young man Absalom. 
Bring, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground, paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and he went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, look at this part, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. And then if you look down at verse 28, this happens for two full years, the text says. So for two years, Absalom's been pardoned, brought back, except not allowed to come into the presence of the king. So there's a partial reconciliation, but it stopped short of... Um, being this sort of full reconciliation that, that I think Scripture calls us to. So um, Absalom gets tired of this, and he says, look, I might as well be exiled in Gesher. I, it's no different for me to be here. I don't have favor with the king. So what, what's going on here? That's, look at verse 29. Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. And so Joab's given Absalom the silent treatment here. I don't know why the text doesn't tell us, but Absalom's trying to reach out to him. He's not getting anything. So Absalom does, he just decides to have his servants light Joab's field on fire. That'll get his attention, right? And so that's what he does. Uh, He says to his servants, Joab's field is next to mine. And he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. That succeeded in getting Joab's attention. Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? <laughs> this is just, I mean, I, I love that. Why, why did you light my field on fire? And Absalom answered, Joab, I sent word to you, come here that I may uh, send you to the king and ask, why have I come to Gesher? It would be better for me to still be there. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. So he he has Joab's ear, finally, and he says, let me go to the presence of the king. And look at what he says. If there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. And so he's got Joab's ear. Joab says, okay, I'll take you into the presence of the king. He goes in, and um, when Joab summoned Absalom, he came into the king, bowed himself on, the, on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. And so there is this next step in the reconciliation process that happens here. David does not kill him. He does let him go, and it appears that there's this coming back together of father and son. And again, we work through that, we read through that, and we, we compare David with Jesus. And David showed mercy to Absalom, but not all the way to the point of full reconciliation. When Jesus, the new and better David, comes onto the scene and sits at the right hand of the Father to this day, he does not distance himself from the forgiven person. He doesn't grant mercy and then leave the person floundering. When Jesus grants mercy, full reconciliation is available. And this is a beautiful thing. And while David was a great king, 
Jesus comes as the son of David and is put in beautiful contrast to a good king. Jesus is better in every way. And I think we ought to see that when we look at some of David's uh, rulings and issues and decisions in life. Jesus doesn't distance himself. And we, I think, can take this principle as well and model Christ-likeness in our interactions with people and not just show mercy and overlook an offense and then kind of be done with it, but seek full reconciliation. I think of that phone conversation with my friend. There was a wedge in our relationship. We both felt the tension. And when it, we had this phone conversation, there was a sense of relief um, and just like freedom of that burden. But what if, you know, he, he doesn't see me on the other side of the phone. What if, what if I still, though I said some words, what if I still felt some of that tension or animosity and um, I felt better about myself having called him and asked him for forgiveness, but in my heart I was still bitter. And he would never know the difference. And I, I'm here in Orange County and he's there. And um, I just think that's, that's a, a real liability for us to feel a sense of guilt, to do something toward reconciliation. And then once we've done something, to feel like, all right, I've done everything I can. The reason we're not reconciled, it's all on their shoulders. And godly, Christ-like reconciliation goes all the way to the person. And I think we ought to pursue right relationships with people that God puts in our lives to the best of our ability, fiercely pursue reconciliation and uh, not leave it halfway. Husbands, can you do this with your wives? You overlook an offense, you show mercy, but you don't forgive all the way. You bring it up again. You remind her about it later. We need to fully restore what's broken. And I just, uh, there are so many issues that come up just in the counseling office where there's a partial reconciliation, there's a, a partial repair of a relationship, and it just kind of sits in that state for months or years. And the, the further it sits, uh, the, the further we move away from each other in this relationship and um, I don't know if you have a strained relationship that's been a matter of days or if it's been a matter of years, but as far as it depends on you, go and pursue reconciliation with that person all the way. Our third key for godly reconciliation comes from looking at Absalom's response to the kindness that he's shown. Absalom's response. So if we look down at verse 29, um, look at verse 29. Absalom sends to Joab. Joab wouldn't come. Oh, yeah, he, he goes and burns the fields. Uh, let me just say a couple of things about this, and then um, we'll also go back to verse 25. Absalom gets mercy though he deserves death. He broke the law, the crime calls for death, he gets 
to come back to the land. And it, you know, could have very well been the case that he was in cahoots with Joe about this whole thing to, to set this all up. Regardless, that wasn't enough to come back into the land. He has to take it a step further. And he, he has to be in the presence of the king. And, and when that isn't happening just by normal human interactions, he takes matters into his own hands and burns Joab's fields. And so, like, it's really interesting to look at Joab's poor choices through this. As the recipient of a ton of mercy, in verse 32, he even says, if there is any guilt in me, let let the king put me to death. The audacity of that claim, right? If there's any guilt in me, you murdered your brother. You set Joab's field on fire just to get the ear of David. There's definitely guilt on him. But David has made this pronouncement to the woman. And Absalom has been let off the hook for it. But um, his entitlement, Absalom's entitlement through this whole thing is unnerving. And if you look in chapter 14, verse 25, there's this little parenthetical section that just kind of expounds on Absalom and his appearance. And it's really reminiscent of like the description of Saul and some of Israel's you know, kings that they're proud of, they're tall and handsome. And, and look, it says, in all of Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Perfect material for a king. And when they cut the hair of his head, for at the end of the year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it and he weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. I mean, who is this guy? He cuts his hair once a year and weighs it. And it's, it weighs a lot. It's a nice head of hair. I mean, like, what's going on here with Absalom? And, and there were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. And she was a beautiful woman. So Absalom's got it all together. And he brings with it entitlement and privilege and expectation of mercy and more mercy. And I get what I want. And so his response to mercy is less than ideal. So point number three, I meant to tell you this earlier, respond appropriately. Respond appropriately to mercy. After this whole chapter, the very next you know, thing that happens is Absalom sets up this conspiracy to usurp his dad and to take over. And this is his response to being let off the hook. The man who deserved the death penalty. And so now you contrast Absalom's response to mercy with King David. When King David was granted mercy from the Lord, what did he do? David, as we've studied earlier, David responded with repentance, which included guilt and conviction and change, just a true repentance and gratitude. 
He cries out in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. There's this brokenness and this, this desire to change. So repentance and gratitude. Mercy gives you time to repent. And we ought to be thankful for the opportunity to repent. When you move into a new place, uh, it takes some time to learn the lay of the land and get to know the streets and you know, the shops and all that. And when we were new to Westfield, Indiana, I had loaded all the kids up in the van, and three, three of the kids, and taken them to Target to go buy mom a Christmas present. And so it's at night, it's cold outside, we get in the, in the van, and we're all excited, we're going to get buy mom a Christmas present, and I come to this stop sign, or uh, I come to a stop light, and I stop, and then I go make a free right. As I'm turning right, I look up at the sign that says, no turn on red, and I'm like, oh no, it was too late, I was already like halfway through the intersection, and so the safer thing for me to do was just to keep going. There wasn't a car. I, I just went. And I saw it too late. Sure enough, there's a police officer watching for this exact thing. And I'm like, oh, man, the, the siren, the, the lights are behind me. And I'm like, all right, kids, um, a, a police officer is going to come and talk to dad right now. So just try to, try to be quiet and don't throw anything at him. I don't know. And... And so they, they're awestruck the whole time. They, they think it's so cool. And I'm, you know, I'm like, hey, sorry, new to the area. It's, you know, I don't know if it was my first time turning at this live. I, I just didn't see the sign until it was too late. My, my bad. And <laughs> the police officer, he's like, okay, you know, takes my information, whatever. Goes back to his car and returns, not with a ticket and in, with a warning, and with three stuffed animals, one for each kid. Hey, Merry Christmas. And I'm like, what is happening right now? This is not California. Um, and I don't know, maybe, maybe that happens in California too. But I, I was like, you know, this is, this is great. Um, so we talked about mercy with the kids. What, what did I deserve? I deserved a ticket. I didn't get what I deserved. You know, the, the police officer not only didn't give me what I did deserve, but he gave you guys three, you know, each, each a, a stuffed animal. And that was really nice of him, wasn't it? And um, what do you think my response was to that? Like, sweet, you know, I wasn't wrong anyway. I, you know, the sign wasn't clear. Like, I, I didn't start making up excuses for why it happened or how I was really innocent to begin with. And, you know, how the police officer was a jerk for pulling me over to begin with or whatever. My response was, um, I, I don't think I ever took a free ride at that light again. Like I, every time I pull up there, I'm like, oh man, this is that cool spot where I was let go for free. And we got stuffed animals out of it as well. And um, so repentance, you could call that. And there was a, a measure of gratitude as well. Where it's like, you know, instead of having to pay uh, a fine at Christmas, you know, we, we, got, uh, we got to go for free, and we got a teaching lesson with the kids out of it as well. So gratitude as well. And uh, I don't always respond 
in a textbook sort of way to mercy. But in that situation, uh, that, th- there's a good response there. And we ought to respond to mercy with repentance and gratitude. I think that's what David does. And I just want to challenge you for a moment just to, to consider where God has shown you mercy in the last 24 hours. And pause and think, because <clears throat> he has for sure, and pause just to what degree. Pause and think, what is your response to that? Are you responding like Absalom with entitlement? Are you responding with a thankfulness and, and realizing this is giving me time to deal with this, deal, time to repent and change? Thank you, and here's my repentance. Or is this sort of entitlement growing in your heart? And talk about a nasty, ugly sort of sin is entitlement for mercy. That's like a special breed of sin. Isn't it? If we start expecting and demanding to be let off the hook, if we take mercy and we cease to be thankful for it, What's happening in our hearts? Express thankfulness to the Lord when he shows mercy. And then also, uh, when, when people show you mercy, here's an opportunity. Uh, the first two points really have to deal with us showing mercy to others and carrying it through all the way. And this last one has to do when, with, when it's shown to us. And I think each of these things are keys to godly reconciliation. Can you... Do the same. Reconciliation is a beautiful thing. It's a godly thing. It's right at the center, I think, of, of God's heart and desire for his people. And you can't control what the other person's going to do when you seek it. I didn't know how the phone call was going to go. But you can control the three keys that we've identified here from this text. You can be a person who shows mercy. You can follow through with it. And you can respond appropriately. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for this text. We're thankful for Jesus who came as um, the son of David to establish his eternal throne, kingdom. And we praise you, God, for his uh, perfection as king and judge, as savior. God, we want to look at Christ tonight and express gratitude God, I pray that you would also teach us important lessons that we need to learn about uh, reconciliation. Help us to be men who are quick to show mercy. Help us, God, to be people who uh, follow through and seek reconciliation all the way. And God, I pray and ask uh, that you would allow us to respond in a godly sort of manner um, when you show us mercy. Pray, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.